Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by the Horn Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, and I'm joined by my three colleagues, Dr. Paul Jean, instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Church here in Vienna, Virginia, Dr. Tommy Keene, academic dean and professor of New Testament, and Dr. Peter Lee, professor of Old Testament and dean of students. Everybody, today we are going to begin a new series on reader's guides. Uh, We want to do reader's guides on books of the Bible, so each episode will be dedicated to a different book in the Bible in which we're going to talk about how, as readers, we should approach each book. And this is actually a topic that's kind of near and dear to all of us as professors of biblical text. We all have books that are kind of our favorites, I think, or the ones that we're drawn back to. So we'll definitely do those. And then we're actually going to pick a few that uh, maybe don't come as easily or might be a little bit more challenging so that we can watch each other squirm as we're trying to put these things together. But um, before we go on, what I wanna do is actually just begin with an introduction to this idea of reader's guides. So what do we mean by a reader's guide to a biblical book? Let me start off with our resident hermeneutics professor, Dr. Tommy Keene. Tommy Keene, tell me about reader's guides. Well, the, 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 like the presupposition of a reader's guide is that reading isn't as easy or intuitive as we think it is. And maybe camping out there is a good spot to start. Just we, you know, we grow up learning our native language. We grow up reading, uh, at least in the modern world, many of us grow up reading. And so we think reading is a natural skill, one that doesn't uh, require a lot of work, but Often what happens is you get into a a genre or a a piece of literature or even a a movie or a podcast that's kind of above you or maybe a little bit out of sync with your expectations. And you find yourself having to think self-consciously about what you're reading, what you're listening to. Um, And it's good in those instances to develop skills fit for what you're engaged in. Reading, like anything, is a skill. It's a skill that needs to be trained and worked and exercised. And that, though scripture is clear and written to to us, it is also uh, written to us by God in a way that we can understand. It's also written to us in natural human languages and genres that are ancient and varied. And as a result, we have to train that skill. How do I appropriate and engage with what's being written as a reader, and what are some of those skills and intuitions that I need to have in tune with with the document? So a reader's guide, what a a reader's guide does is bring your mindset and set of presuppositions that you're approaching a book or a work, bring it in line with what you are actually reading so that you you are a more productive reader. Uh, It doesn't give you all the answers, but it gives you those tools that you need to read productively and fruitfully. That's a great comment. I like how you start off with native born language acquisition and the idea that we think we know what's going on and that we actually have to stop and ask ourselves 
what is actually going on, particularly in the area of reading the Bible, because when you're working with churched folks, people who are raised in the church, there are a lot of stories in the Bible that people think they understand. They were, you know, they saw it on flannel graph back in Sunday school. Mm -hmm. So they're like, well, this is, this is kind of the ABCs of biblical literacy. And one of the more exciting things I think as a teacher that we get to do is actually show them like, actually, do you, do you think do you really understand what's going on? You know, is, is the story of Jonah really about a fish or is it about something else? Yeah. You know, is, is the ark really about animals being two by two or is it really about something else? Because if you read it in light of what the New Testament writers are saying about it, they, they say it's about something else and getting people to step back and kind of take that thing that was familiar and, help them understand it's not maybe as familiar as you think it is. You might've actually, or the, the, the presumed familiarity may have actually veiled the meaning yeah. of the text from me. Yeah. In, in some ways, then the, the new Testament, which in many ways comes sits closer culturally to Western Christians than does the old Testament, or at least apparently does. Yeah. There's some big, stumbling blocks for readers like I, I think of acts you know acts as a historical document um, and many approach acts as kind of a church history it is a history of the church it is a true history of the church it is historical so we're not denying any of that but if you approach it as a kind of like the first church history and presuppose that it's going to tell me everything i need to know about how the church originated and grew then you're going to be disappointed as a reader because there's this guy, James, in Acts 15 that everybody knows, everybody believes is prominent. He's a known figure, and we get absolutely no history on how he went from being just the ordinary brother of Christ to, a, to what Paul calls in, in, in Galatians 2, a pillar of the church. What happened? We don't get any of that. And the reason we don't get any of that is because Luke isn't primarily trying to inform ignorant people about how the church came to be, but rather to persuade Theophilus um, and his audience that what they have inherited is true and fundamentally from God and a work of the Spirit. And so that agenda shifts then how we should approach the book as a reader. You can still ask who's James and how did he get to be prominent? But getting frustrated that Luke doesn't answer those questions is kind of outside of the purview of the book. And now I'm able to read more productively because my presuppositions are in sync. There is a uh, Old Testament uh, version, Tommy, of what you just shared about the book of Acts in, uh, in the Old Testament with uh, uh, a figure like Omri, who is a significant king in the northern, uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel. So after the divide of the north and the south, um, the uh, one of the prominent northern kings is Omri, but we only know that from extra biblical records. Uh, if you just looked at Omri's reign from what is recorded in the book of Kings, it's just a couple verses. Mm -hmm. uh, so you would think that he's actually fairly insignificant when really he was probably more analogous to what Solomon was in the, um, in, in the south. And that goes to show you how, you know, we have a concept of history as a genre in our day, and oftentimes we'll uh, kind of force that understanding on what looks like history in, in other biblical places, Book of Acts, yeah. uh, Kings, Samuel, and whatever. 
uh, when uh, they're not quite doing the same same thing. The uh, and that I think really uh, speaks to a, a reading strategy. You know, it looks like history, and it kind of is, but don't presume they're doing what a modern historian in our day uh, is doing today. As a point of fact, uh, uh, you know, the the historical narratives that we have were really written by prophets, so they they were functioning in a prophetic sense. Mm. So what what were the prophets? Why were they writing down history? That you see that I think is is a way to try to understand the reason and how we have a uh, a, uh, a a history of Israel, uh, why it's reliable because of the uh, the reason why the prophets were re- uh, writing it and uh, why they were recording certain things in the way uh, that uh, that they were. Also, with uh, what Scott said earlier about language and how important it is to know that, I'll tell you, you, we still have people who think that you know Hebrew is like a code that has to be deciphered, and and, and a, the first thing you try to persuade them is, it isn't that; it's just a language. You know, um, people spoke this and wrote this. It, it isn't uh, a key that has to be deciphered. Just learn it like uh, anyone would learn any language, and and it just makes it less intimidating and less uh, uh, and less threatening if you can just see it that way. A child spoke this, uh, so just think of it that way. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting topic because I absolutely believe in the discipline of daily Bible reading. And I think that's edifying. I have my children do it. And, you know, I think that's a, a great and necessary discipline. But now I like what Tommy said from the beginning because I think what we're trying to get at here is reading the Bible deliberately. And there is actually a liability to reading the Bible regularly, but incorrectly. And I, I don't mean for that to sound snooty, but it's sort of like, this is a bad analogy, but if you learn golf incorrectly from the very beginning, and then you are practicing the wrong swing, then it actually is not helpful. And see, no one approaches the Bible without a hermeneutic. I think that there's this naive idea that, well, when I'm reading the Bible, I'm just listening to the word of God. And we don't realize we actually do have an interpretive model. And so I think Scott gave the example of like Jonah before. We have this interpretation that is just going to get reinforced in many instances. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's a lot of value actually to asking the question of how to read the Bible deliberately. Um, one of the obstacles that I think pastors and seminary professors we encounter is that that approach might feel elitist or academic. That, that's what I've heard. Or it might even feel exclusive. Like, well, who's to say that God is not speaking to me through this, right? So it, it gets complicated. But, you know, like what everyone has been saying here, God does want us to handle the word of God correctly. So... You know, I think this idea of reading the Bible deliberately and purposefully is invaluable. But I, again, I notice many people are hesitant to uh, do that, at least in the church. I, I don't, one of the things that happens, you know, reading the Bible deliberately, it, there are some just passive ways that we're set on a, a wrong reading trajectory. I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I, um, in our church, we gave our middle schoolers when they, they became communicants and they became members of the church. We gave them a reader's Bible. A reader's Bible, for those who don't know, is a, 
it's a Bible that takes out all of the verses and the subheadings and the chapter numbers. And it just, it lines it up like a normal book. Uh, it, it's amazing the transition that will happen to you passively without even thinking about it as a reader when you approach a book that way. You, you start to turn on a different section of your brain. You're, you're encouraged to read big chunks of scripture rather than little tiny bits of scripture. When you open up a typical Bible, you know, a reference Bible or a study Bible or just, you know, your standard pew Bible, it's organized and designed to help you find things quickly, which means little bits of text in little bitty chunks. But that's not how we write. That's not how we write. That's not how we read. And so it turns on a different set of presuppositions in our brain so that we're kind of always involved in the minutiae. It's, it's these subtle things that we don't realize is happening to us as readers. And we uh, something like a reader's guide or an orientation is a good reminder to, hey, this is how this was written. This is how it should be approached. This is how you get into the mindset of being a fruitful and productive reader. See, that's, there's another reason why I think that's so interesting because um, I don't know if this is what you meant, Tommy, but... I've heard more than a few people comment in this way. Unless you are preaching verse by verse, word by word, then you're not preaching the Bible, yeah. right? And I understand that sentiment, but if the Bible was written to be understood as a whole big literary union, then there's actually a lot of value to just being able to preach through an entire book almost, or even an mm -hmm. entire passage where you are maybe in some ways being more faithful to the meaning by not going verse by verse. You know, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's something I've been thinking through a lot because again, there's this perception, unless I'm following the verses and expositing every word and phrase, then I'm not actually presenting the counsel of God. And I don't know. So as we're thinking about this, we've already started talking about historical selectivity that the authors are drawing out salient pieces of information to tell. Like any good storyteller, I remind my classes, all good storytellers, whether they're aware of it or not, they know how to craft a story to bring you to the end of the story that they already know as they're telling the story. And so that's how storytelling storytellers tell stories well. And our biblical authors are good authors. So they select out information that fits their agenda uh, for the passage, a theological agenda. I want to talk a little bit more then about what are the kinds of things that we're going to be talking about in these reader's guides. We already talked about a reading strategy, and what we mean by that is what is the, the most effective strategy for reading the book well? And it's not always going to be the same thing, right? Sometimes if you're reading a, a letter of Paul, you may read it in one way versus reading the history of you know, uh, uh, found in the book of Samuel, for instance. You know, you might read that in a slightly different way. Or the Psalter, you might read the Psalter a little bit differently than the way that you can read Deuteronomy. And reading strategies are important because it helps set us up for success, I think, in properly understanding the text. But I'd also like to talk a little bit about genre because we instantly in this conversation went right into talking about uh, Acts and um, you know, the Book of Kings and these historical accounts, how does genre help us understand 
uh, or help us interpret a book? Why do we need to rightly understand the, the, the speech type that the book is or that the section in the book is? Because obviously some books have different genre in them. So help us think through a little bit about the importance of genre. I think it's one of the most important things to orient yourself as a reader. It, it, it tends to go in the, you know, think about special introduction concerns like who wrote it, when they wrote it. Genre tends to go in the back of the book. And I, it drives me nuts because as a reader, actually the thing I need to know most is, the thing I need to be oriented to most is what am I reading? I'm gonna, I'm gonna exercise a different section of my brain if I'm reading a newspaper than if I'm reading Harry Potter, than if I'm reading you know, some um, you know, fancy literature or poetry. Those are all gonna just be approached differently. If I approach them the same, I'm going to be cataclysmically off you know, as a, as, as a reader. So uh, satire, you know, uh, uh, you know, if you, if you approach satirical news sites, the same way you approach news sites, it might be just a little bit that they're intended to look like one another, but they're just slightly different, right? So the one is a joke and the other is not. And if I miss that, uh, I'm going to end up making a fool of myself. So it, it's one of those key issues that I think has to be in place at the beginning before we even get started to, to appropriately appreciate it. Yeah, totally agree. It's almost the uh, first level of understanding the meaning of a text is to understand the genre of the text. Uh, there's a really interesting Old Testament example in, in Proverbs uh, that says, you know, train up a child in the way that he should go. Then when he gets old, he won't deviate. I mean, something like that, that he won't leave it. And parents will read that and think, you know, that this is like almost prophetic. If I do this, then it's a guarantee with this outcome. And, uh, and they don't, and they forget, this is a proverb. This is sort of all things being equal. Here's what may happen. Here's what can happen, but it's not a guarantee. And, um, and we have to remember to read this as wisdom, not as prophecy. Uh, and there are parents who will uh, read this in a way and then get grossly disappointed when, sadly, if their children start to deviate a little bit and think that the Bible's not reliable. Well, no, again, it's wisdom. And, and to understand it as wisdom is a way to understand what that word of, a, of, of wisdom is uh, is trying to say even in uh, again maybe staying in Proverbs we can say things in Proverbs because it's wisdom that you may not be able to say for example like in Deuteronomy and biblical law so you know a fool um, uh, you know there are times when you can rebuke a fool and other times when you should not rebuke a fool they look like they're conflicting things that's that great example uh, where you have just that back to back verses I think in twenty six. Uh, verses four and five, if I remember right, where it says, rebuke a fool, and next says, don't rebuke a fool, and it looks like it's conflicting. Well, if that was in Deuteronomy, then yeah, we might have an issue of two propositional truths that are really in conflict, but it's not Deuteronomy. This is wisdom. The basic idea, then, you have to allow the genre to dictate, you know, the meaning. That's a good uh, example. Yeah, and the, and the so, wisdom is found between the lines, so it's, it's knowing when to rebuke a fool and when not to rebuke. Right. It needs, you need wisdom to understand yeah. wisdom in a manner of speaking. Yeah. I, I think the, the interesting thing about genre to me, too, is anytime you can find 
examples in the scripture where the authors and the characters themselves are aware of genre is, is really important. I think you can find it. You have to kind of read closely, deliberately, like Paul said, you know, to be aware of the fact that, you know, the story of Nathan, for instance, where Nathan is convicting David of his sin with Bathsheba, and he comes in and he tells what on, on its face looks like a case that the king needs to judge. And then as we as later revealed, the genre is actually quite different. It's actually not a, it's not a, it's not a literal court case. It's a parable about David. Or when the, you know, when the apostles or disciples rather come to Jesus and say, you've been speaking figuratively to us. Can you now speak plainly? And Jesus says, okay, let me speak plainly. You know, John 16 yeah. kind of thing. You know, they're, they're aware of genre. I didn't say when Jesus is asked, is, is, is a, is John the Baptist Elijah, and John has already said, no, I'm not Elijah, and Jesus goes, yeah, he's Elijah. <laughs> if you can receive it, what does Jesus say? He said, figuratively, there's yeah. a way, there's a, there's a sense in which he's telling, he's, really, this is an interaction with genre, and one of my favorites is, is Amos in the Old Testament is uh, bringing his judgment to the northern kingdom, and he's going through this list of oracles against the nations, which are in most of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12 minor prophets, they all have, they all have oracles against other nations. And those oracles are generally understood to be causes of hope for the audience, because the Lord is saying, don't worry, I will judge your enemies too. I'm not just disciplining my people, but I'm going to judge the enemies of God. And, and here's Amos speaking to a northern kingdom audience, and he's going through all the nations who are going to be judged. And he gets to Judah at the end. And it's a very long judgment against Judah. And, and you can hear his northern kingdom audience saying, like, that's right. That's right. Every, all of our enemies, even the southern kingdom, is going to be judged. And then who's the last kingdom who gets the longest judgment oracle? It's his audience itself. You know, I, I, that, That's something like a postmodern play on genre. He's taking a genre that always means one thing. And he's kind of flipping it around to kind of get behind the audience and come at them from behind, you know. And it's, it, it, I think it just shows an awareness of genre that even the biblical authors have, that we're, uh, we're wrong to think, oh, this is just modern literary criticism. This is something that was going on in the, in the minds of the audiences and the authors. And you can see them playing with it. You know? and, and correlative to that, like the, you, you could hear this discussion and think, oh, this is so important. And it's also this, you know, literary theory how do i do that well actually this is we're describing as, as so often happens we're describing something that you do intuitively when when you approach a book when you approach a movie you intuitive intuitively grasp genre you know you you, you open i know paul is reading the twilight series you, know, you open twilight and and you oh, intuitively grasp <laughs> that this is teenage romantic vampire fiction. Like you just immediately know what genre is that, is that, that you're in. No, I <laughs> just spoke. I think we should, for the sake of our audience, Paul's not reading the Twilight okay. series. Um, I, I, will, I will try not to be funny. But Peter is. But Peter Harry Potter. Harry Potter, okay. You intuitively know that you're, when you were in Harry Potter, that you're in, you know, fantasy literature. You don't have to be told what genre you were watching when you're in Star Wars. Why? Because authors signal that to you from the beginning. Now, especially with, with works that are distant from us, you know, the Bible is an ancient book. And so those genres shift and change a bit. And so 
that that kind of self-conscious reflection is needed and appropriate in scripture in a way that's intuitive for modern literature but it, we're not dealing with something that's cryptic and mysterious authors understand and they signal to their readers hey this is the kind of discourse that you're in luke tells us up front that he's talking about the matters that happened among us. We, we, we get that historical vibe from the beginning. Um, and it's easier for things like Luke, uh, Luke Acts than, than some other books, but authors will signal that. You know, Paul to the Romans, greetings. You know, I know I'm reading a letter. Now I might need to think about how letters work in the ancient world, but I'm not uninformed about what Paul is doing. You've done work on that with like the book of Revelation. You don't mm -hmm. think of Revelation as a letter, but it yeah. it kind of gives you its own reading strategy on the front end. It says, here's a bunch of letters. Yeah, and John says of Revelation, this is John to the seven churches. Yeah. Uh, so he gives that letter form too. So we're supposed to you know, think through that. So genre is important if we don't, you know, if we don't pay attention to genre. And, and, and it's not like this is, deep voodoo either you can get into the genre it's just like in english you know once upon a time a dragon lived in the castle you're not going to be thrown off by that if it's said in 1948 several years after the end of world war ii a dragon lived in the castle you go wait a minute something's going on here that i'm not i'm not aware of because the genre is is is, is, is apparent in, in both cases one's fairy tale one begins at least sounding like history so genre is important um but so is the structure of the book itself. I mean, these books that we have, and most of them are discernible. You can discern a structure, and, and the structures aren't always going to be the same, but when we actually look at the, the shape of the book, um, you can generally make out contours, sections, um, a development of an argument, you know, what we typically now call outlines. And, and I think that learning outlines of books is about the best thing you can do to improve your off-the-cuff biblical interpretation. Uh, if you know how a book works, to, uh, to steal Adele Berlin's phrase, if you know how a book works, then you can see what it means. If you know how it means, then you can see what it means. And a lot of the how is the outline or the structure of the book. So we're going to be talking about outlines as well. And there's, there's a bunch that I can think of that come to mind. You know, I, when we, I would like to talk about Daniel as difficult and interesting of the book as that is. Daniel also has a very clear outline. There's a series of stories in Aramaic on the front end. And then suddenly it becomes like apocalyptic material at the end. And it raises the question, like, what genre is this? Is this history or is this prophetic or uh, you know, prophetic apo uh, you know, apocalypse or something like that? Um, you know, Isaiah has got a clear outline that most people agree on, and yet the significance of that outline matters. What do you all think about outlines? Well, I really like the, the comment that you made, you know, outlines are going to look different depending on the book. So depending on genre, really. So um, an outline of Proverbs is, is not going to be as fruitful as an outline of Romans, which is more logical and discursive. But what an outline tries to capture is coherence, the, the way in which all of the component parts fit together. Um, and I, I like the how, how it means kind of language. An outline gives you this map. This is where we're going. This is where you are. And that allows you to then do that, the nitty gritty work of 
how does this paragraph, how does this section fit into the work as a whole? How does this serve the broader agenda and purpose? I think that's incredibly valuable. I totally agree. I think outlines of biblical books are, are hugely helpful. The, uh, there is a certain relation at times, I think, when we have the outline of a book that is helpful in terms of the meaning, the message of the book. You know, I'm thinking of the book of Acts, actually, yeah. with Acts 1-8. That yeah. kind of gives you a roadmap of, of tracing the uh, that Pentecostal, you know, outpouring of the Spirit right. and, and mark certain periods. But if you understand it that way, then you understand, uh, you know, the role of the Spirit, what's happening there, fulfillment of prophecy, and mm-hmm. and uh, to a certain degree, perhaps the the rationale, perhaps the limits of the Spirit's outworking and outpouring in that real extraordinary way. It's mapping out the uh, yeah. Book of Acts. And uh, and that's great. I think it's the book of Genesis actually as well. The and maybe Genesis is it's one of those books that has so many different proposed outlines. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. You pick up ten commentaries and you might see ten different variations. And so you know that might not be the best example, but the one that I've always liked is um, you know the the these are the generations of formula and how it's almost like chapter headings. So you yeah. have sort of a creation opening then these are the generations and marks out 10 chapters. But the reason I like that is because that so reinforces Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman and the generational development of the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, and how you're seeing that now uh, tying in the message of the book now being reinforced by its literary structure. And, and, and when we can see that the two uh, harmonize and cohere, it, it's where the structure and the message are not distinct two radically different things it's where the structure actually reinforces mm-hmm. yeah uh, the message of the book exodus is actually not not too different than that yeah i think actually i think just is a great example because it shows how you can have literary you know literary discourse markers or something that divide the text one way and then you can maybe if you've got more of a historical concern and you want to do primeval yeah. patriarchal and joseph cycles or something you can do it in a different way Right, and it kind of shows your outline shows the concern of the audience. I was just teaching on Matthew for a community group leaders thing, and I, I had never noticed how Matthew does seem to have an intro, birth narratives, then crucifixion, resurrection, divided up by five chapters, each of which are uh, discourse, sermon, and then have Matt, the author says after Jesus had finished saying these things, and then discourse sermon, after Jesus has finished saying these, and I'm like, wow, oh, this seems to be what the gospel writer is using to divide up the text. You know, it's kind of clear. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Now, it's not the way I've ever outlined it before, because I'm usually looking at thematic things or something like that. But I think that's one part of it is recognizing that the outline gives you tools for interpreting because it keeps your mind on the point that you made earlier, Tommy, keeps your mind on the big picture and not just getting lost amongst the like little atomized verses or pericopes, but you're really dwelling on the overarching story and you're keeping that whole, that whole logical argument in mind. And to, to that point, it, it reinforces, we haven't talked about this, but the other, the other kind of, I think we're building a three-legged stool, at least here, the other kind of component to understanding like basic content of what you're reading is purpose. Mm. You know, like genre outline is helpful. Uh, purpose, I think, is also extremely helpful. And your outline reinforces purpose. Why? Because 
the author writes with a strategy and is going to, a good author will orient the flow of their work in order to make sure that their designs are accomplished, their purpose is, is met. Um, and an outline can kind of demonstrate that. You look at Matthew, Luke, Mark, and you think about the differences between those. Well, Mark has a very clear outline. It has a, it has a, um, almost everyone, every commentator on Mark will tell you that the center of Mark is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And you, you, you moving up to that point, we have Jesus failing uh, his, his true identity. Um, and Jesus, then Peter confesses th that he is the Christ. And Jesus, over the course of the next half of the book, is going to be unveiling his messianic identity, in particular that he is going to suffer, that the Messiah must suffer and die. And, and that kind of indicates to us, it, it's helpful as a reading strategy, but also it's an indicator to purpose, that the purpose of Mark is, and the unique kind of character of Mark is, it's designed to show us the um, paradoxical way in which Jesus is king. He's king, but a crucified king. Uh, and that then that brings out the centrality of his messianic identity, but also the centrality of his crucifixion in, in obtaining that. So th these all of these kind of concepts help reinforce one another and give us. And, and they're reciprocal, too. It's not yeah. like you start with one. And you don't know the purpose if you haven't read it and developed the argument yet in your head. And yet, as you develop a better sense of the outline, you start to see the purpose emerge and you have to do that all in light of genre, but you don't know the genre from word one. You have to kind of read the book closely and see its outline and get a sense of its purpose and then get a sense of the genre. You know, generally speaking, uh, there, there's a reciprocal nature to it by which you, you benefit from people who have been studying the text longer um, and who are, are standing on the shoulders of giants, as it were, because you're getting to benefit from this reciprocal process, you know, and uh, it's the reason why I think you, know, it's, you gotta keep all of these in mind and let them refine themselves. You, know, you may have a really clear outline and then someone shows you a better outline and, and be able to refine your outline. Or, or you try on a different outline. Yeah. You know, there, there might not be just one way of outlining the book. I, I think of Revelation here, there's some very clear structure, uh, Genesis as well, very clear structure that's almost obvious, seven yeah. signs. Seven. But then within that, there's loopbacks and there's the you know thematic building that takes place. And if you pick something different to outline, it can highlight a new perspective on the book. Yeah. I like themes as, as one other topic. That's how you discern. We've been talking about this a little bit. But you start to notice what you know, what are the themes that the author seems interested in? You know, the, the common one that a lot of our readers will, or listeners will probably know about is like if you're reading, if you're reading Ruth, you start to get a sense that chesed, you know, the loving kindness of the Lord is kind of important, right? It's a theme he keeps going back to. It's a lead motive or, lead, you know, a motif rather, or a lead word, you know, and you find this throughout you know, Messiah, the declaration of Jesus as Christos is, is very important in Mark, and that's that's apparent. And you may have to read it four times on your own before you realize, oh, it seems to kind of all rotate around this little middle passage here. Um, you, know, you get a sense of those themes, though, from that regular reading, and you refine and you develop those themes. And as you get a better sense of biblical theology and how sacrifice and priest are all under that temple motif, you know, and you get that kind of... Uh, 
you know, you'll, you'll develop it and, and become a better reader as you spend more time in yeah. this literary world. The Gospels are a great example of that. I mean, you've got here, you've got four biblical books that are all about the same thing. They had the same reference, the death and resurrection of Christ as the yeah. culmination of redemption, but they do it thematically different. And that colors the way we, uh, you know, we are as readers approach the book. For Luke, he's so focused on Jesus as a servant to the poor and to the outcast. Mark is so focused on the paradoxical way in which he accomplishes this redemption. Is the, those different themes can highlight angles on the one event mm-hmm. that um, that fit the author's particular purpose. So it's a it's a really important thing to notice. But it's interesting, you know, some of the things that are also here that you'll see in like a special introduction are like author, date, um, some of these kind of historical, historical background, you'll see some of those kinds of things there. And those are all important too. It's funny to me that those are the things that are, tend to be fronted in a special mm-hmm. introduction, mm-hmm. but are not actually as relevant to me as a reader as I begin to process the book. I can understand Luke without knowing that Luke wrote it. Uh, I can appropriate it and appreciate it. Now, knowing that Luke wrote it might be helpful, but it's not that the thing that I need most immediately. Uh, so uh, yeah. this is why I kind of like the idea of reader's guides, because the goal isn't here's the content that's in Luke or in Romans or in Revelation um, that you need to know. It's here's how to be a productive and fruitful reader. So, that's good. And some books will have more historical connectivity than others, obviously. Yeah. Letters, you need to know who the author is. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, I even think Genesis, reading Genesis in light of Moses and the Exodus generation unpacks a whole lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you can't read it without it, but if you get it, you start to make sense of why there's a serpent in the garden. At least, why does he select that out of salient information, right? Why is it salient that Cain is a farmer and Abel is a shepherd. Why is that salient information selected out by the author? Because he's not, you know, he's not telling us that just because he feels like he has to be really open about what jobs people have. Um, you know, so it's it's interesting, it's interesting to play with these things. And I and I say play, but to really, you know, to 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 bring all of this information in and then see, okay, what's beneficial in interpreting the text and what's not. So that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to have a conversation about that. Each one of us will have. Uh, books that we're kind of more specialized in than others. And so we'll be able to ask questions and interrogate each other. That's another term that's often used in hermeneutics. We'll get to interrogate one another and let the text interrogate us. And that's not a bad thing. And hopefully this conversation will be a benefit to you all as you're thinking about, okay, how do I teach this in a Bible study? How do I understand this for myself personally? How do I teach this to my kids? And we hope that this will be a benefit to you and give you a more vivid deeper experience of God's word as you're delving into these books on your own. So we look forward to that series and uh, we'll begin that in the weeks ahead. We look forward to being with you then. Until then, take care.
there is a, uh, this is Peter, by the way, in case some of you might have forgotten my name. <laughs> Start your answer now. We're not doing that anymore. I like how each time, too, you start your comment, then you stop and correct yourself. And halfway through the correction, you remember that we're not doing that. It's a three level correction. Teach an old dog new truth. Now, anyhow, real pastor Peter Lee, tell us. Uh, okay, where should I pick up? Uh, I mean, this is an interesting topic because this is Paul Jung, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> now we can't I'm cut sorry. it. <laughs> sorry. I agree. I think outlines are incredibly helpful. I'm sorry, let me start again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, guys. It's I guess inside the, your brain. This, like, this is Peter Lee again. This is Peter Lee again. Don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. We are not introducing ourselves now. Well, but people know our names. We're, they listen to us as they go to sleep at night. 